Last week gave me a whole new perspective of what it means to be a social butterfly, Jesse. What do you got for me this week? A 40-year-old cold case finally comes to a close when a killer couple in their 70s is charged with not one, not two, not even three, but four murders. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse, welcome back everyone to Love Murder. This is a true crime podcast that puts the hopeless in hopeless romantic. We tell the human interest stories of real life relationships that go wrong in the absolute worst way possible. Jesse, I can't wait to hear about this crazy old couple. But first, a big thank you to everyone who has reviewed the show and submitted a rating. Oh my gosh, yes. Thank you guys so much. Your reviews and ratings this week have just touched my heart. It really does. It makes a massive difference in helping new people discover love murder. So if you like the show, please let people know by reviewing us, rating us, whatever floats your boat. Totally. You can also connect with us on social media. We're at Love Murder Pod on Instagram and Twitter and just search Love Murder Podcast to find us on Facebook. Finally, next week, we're doing our very first listener-suggested case. I know. It's a really good one, too. So if you have ideas, email us at lovers at lovemurder.com or message us at any of the aforementioned social medias. Great. Okay, Andy, are you ready for our first ever kind of cold case. Oh, shit. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it's solved, so it's no longer cold, <laughs> but it was like, it's like a microwave meal. It was cold for a very long time, and then it heats up at the end. Oh, my gosh. I'm very intrigued now. You know how I feel about cold cases. <laughs> I know. I know. And I never choose them because, like, Andy's the one who loves cold cases. I'm the one who likes solved cases. I think it's like, the storyteller in me that wants like a really good, satisfying ending. But today we get a little of each. Oh my God. Oh no. <laughs> okay. As usual, I'm going to start with a dramatic reading Perfect. that I wrote. Perfect. And then, and then we'll launch into the story. Great. On August 27th, 2013, almost 39 years since anybody had laid eyes on Ronald Lee Holtz alive, Wyoming cold case detectives embarked on their last and perhaps only chance of finding him. They stood at the mouth of a dangerous abandoned mine called McLaughlin Shaft, located at the edge of Remount Ranch. The shaft was the final resting place of countless horses, dogs, and livestock throughout the years. If the decades-old rumors were correct, somewhere deep down, under layers of trash, muck, and decomposing animal corpses, they would find the bones of a once-troubled but vibrant young man whose life was cut viciously short by the woman he had loved. Detectives, firefighters, and specialists wearing respirators to protect themselves from the airborne dirt and unholy stench prepared to rope down into the cramped vertical shaft on their somber recovery mission. Invited to the stomach-churning expedition was retired DCI agent Lonnie Tabiste, looking for answers to questions that had haunted his every waking hour for over 12 years. He didn't want to get his hopes up for the millionth time, but his gut instinct screamed that this search would be different. 
The mass animal grave produced a vile slop as the workers dug. Cow and horse bones from skulls to hooves to everything in between came out in great clusters. Grave wax, the wax-like organic substance that is formed after the putrefaction of fatty tissues and internal organs, spotted every shovelful of dirt they piled. Every animal body was slimed in a sticky black goo okay. created by years. Jesse. <laughs> Sorry, it's not like me to interrupt your dramatic reading, but <laughs> I know we're both just gagging a little bit. Guys, I should have done a trigger warning for putrefied <laughs> animals in this. Whew, I got really into this one. I'm, I apologize to everyone who's listening <laughs> and to myself a little bit. <laughs> Decaying meat, human refuse, pine needles, and dirty runoff water. The stink was overpowering, as I bet you can all imagine. <laughs> Moving into the second day of digging, the firefighters had managed to safely deepen the hole from 25 to 35 feet. While they found everything from sheep skulls to owl femurs, nothing human had been discovered. On they dug for hours and hours and hours, deeper down into the fetid cavern, slowly and carefully raising buckets of bones for the detectives and Dr. Weathermon, a forensic osteologist, to sift through. As Lonnie TV sifted through a screen of smallish bones, Weathermon screamed, Stop! Tabi's heart started racing. Better call the coroner, the osteologist said. It was a human metatarsal, one of the five bones in the foot between the ankle and toes. Forty feet at the bottom of the shaft suddenly became officially a crime scene as human bones started pouring from the hole. First, a bucket with two humeri, humeri, two humeri, and then more buckets with ribs, femurs, tibia, scapulae, then a skull with a perfect little bullet hole in the back. This gruesome discovery would not only offer heartbreak and relief to the victim's daughter, but also unlock another mysterious cold case and result in catching two killers who had a body count of four and maybe five people between them. Two heartless individuals who ruined the lives of countless others on the day they met and fell in love. This is the homicidal love story of Alice and Gerald Uden. Ew. <laughs> so I read a book called Alice and Gerald, A Homicidal Love Story by Ron Franchelle. And in it, he actually changes the names of Alice's children. She has five of them and uh, three of them feature pretty heavily in the book. And he did change all of their names to protect their identities. So I'm going to stick with the names he cool. used. I like that. Yeah. Protect the innocent, man. They did not ask to be born to a murderer. No. Okay, so let's start with Gerald. Gerald's childhood and early adulthood consisted of fishing, hunting, shooting guns, fixing cars, and eventually a four-year stint in the Navy. So when he got out of the Navy when he was 22, he moved back to Wyoming and got a job as a maintenance man at a mine. And in the fall of 1965, he met his first wife while butchering an elk in an alley. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not exactly an auspicious start. Apparently, he had been hunting, he killed an elk, and he was butchering it in his, the alley behind his parents' house uh, when a 17-year-old girl 
named Barbara Ann approached him and apparently she knew her shit about how to dress an elk and he was impressed. Like dress like what's like field dress. Well, not field. In the field would be like you do it in the woods. But like dress I mean by like cutting it open and like taking its organs out and crap. You're talking to the vegan here. A vegan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, there's been like a lot of talk about animal guts and we just started the podcast today. Yeah, we're what, like five minutes in? Exactly. Sorry, guys. We try to get right into the story and today we get right into the entrance <laughs> of the story. <laughs> anyway, Barbara Ann was a sweet 17-year-old high school student, though she turned 18 and graduated soon after their courtship began. They got married that Christmas and moved into a trailer in his parents' backyard. A couple years after they got married, uh, her birth control pills caused life-threatening blood clots that sent Barbara Ann to the hospital. Yeah, I heard that like back in the day, that was a possible side effect of some birth control. Ooh, that's scary. Um, Yeah. So after a painfully short recovery period in which she really didn't actually recover, Gerald demanded that she get back on her feet so she could do chores and service his needs. Excuse me? Yeah. He told her to buck up even though she had nearly died two weeks earlier. So he's an asshole. Like, I mean, we're setting the tone right from the beginning. Yeah. And Barbara Ann did get back on her feet and she walked her ass to divorce court and marriage number one was toast. Good for you, Barbara Ann. <laughs> oh, is Barbara Ann her real name? Yeah. Ba, 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 So five years later in the spring of 1973, he wed wife number two, a woman named Wanda, who liked to party, shoot guns, and ride motorcycles. Alas, after only six weeks of wedded bliss, wild child Wanda took off and left Gerald twice divorced at the ripe old age of 30. Woof. Yeah, so this super depressed Gerald (laughs) desperately wanted a family of his own. And I think at this point, he was actually kind of being a little reflective and realizing maybe it was him. He decided if he had the opportunity to wed again, he would be less demanding and controlling and maybe more solicitous and kind. What a novel thought. Seriously. It's two divorces under 30 will do that to you. Yeah, exactly. He asked his landlady to hook him up with a good woman. So apparently landladies were the tinder of the 1970s. Oh, my God. (laughs) And his his prayers were answered when a 25-year-old single mom named Virginia rang his doorbell. So Virginia was a brunette with like these huge, large 70s glasses. We'll definitely put a picture up in the Instagram. And she had a really nice smile. And Gerald was instantly attracted to her. She said that Fran, his landlady, had recommended she stop by and ask Gerald how much she could get for a vintage 22 rifle that had been owned by her grandfather. Gerald, being the gun buff that he was, informed her, unfortunately, it wasn't worth much. So Virginia was really stressed out, and she told him she had hoped to sell it for some scratch because she was a single mom of two young boys, and she was barely making ends meet working at a hodgepodge of odd jobs. So she kind of was just like straight up with him, like, oh, I really wanted to sell this. My my life has been really terrible. I mean, she just met this guy and she's just putting it out there. So equal parts handy and horny, Gerald offered to help Virginia out with some chores and handyman work at her small house. Well, that's so that's he was kind of like, 
Yeah, I think that's nice. I think he was hoping to get a little something in return, but he did say like, hey, you sound really, you know, exhausted and I can't give you any money and, you know, I don't think this gun is worth that much, but I'd love to come help you out, which is actually kind of – yeah. So she gratefully accepted and a romance bloomed between the two. So Virginia had had a rough go at life. She was born to an enterprising single mother herself, but the two had had chronic money issues. When Virginia graduated high school, she worked a series of short, menial jobs, and she had had a hard time staying employed. At 20, she had gotten pregnant and been briefly married to a Korean war vet, but he kicked her out after she called his toddler from a previous marriage a son of a bitch. Oh, my God. She's not exactly maternal. I don't think she took to motherhood very well, and she certainly didn't take to anyone else's kid, obviously. So the marriage had only lasted six months, and after they were divorced, her first son, Richard, was born two months later. So her ex paid her $75 a month in child support, and later her second son, Regan, was born two years later, and even though he went by the same last name as Richard, he was actually the product of Virginia's fling with a curly-headed bartender from Jackson Hole. Yeah, so I think she was still messing around with the ex-husband and told him that The second son was also his, but it was kind of common knowledge that it wasn't. Yeah. So first came sex, then came fishing for the couple. Virginia and Gerald had great chemistry and both enjoyed Gerald's favorite pastimes of fishing and hunting. Well, Virginia had always struggled with being the single mother of two high-energy young boys, Gerald seemed to channel their energies effectively into outdoor activities. The whole family would go camping together, and for maybe the first time ever, Virginia actually had a partner in parenting. That's really nice. Yeah, I think that was very attractive to her. So that, the good sex, and his like relatively good job at the U.S. steel mine made him a very good prospective husband, you know? And for Gerald, he had the instant family he had always dreamed of. And she was super adventurous, so he could explore the great outdoors with her. And I think he also really liked having two sons that he felt like he could be a father figure to and, like, teach all of the, like, the hunting and fishing stuff that he loved to, you know? So three months after Virginia appeared on the front step of Gerald's trailer, he asked her to marry him, and Virginia eagerly accepted. They were married only a few days later on July 3rd, 1974. Gerald moved his trailer behind Virginia's small bungalow and they were officially hitched. Shortly after the wedding, the boys began to call Gerald dad and Virginia convinced Gerald to formally adopt the boys so the family could be real. So yeah, this was an opportunity that Gerald was very excited to seize. It did mean no more child support from Virginia's ex. Oh. Yeah, so they'd have to go without that $75 a month. But Gerald was making decent money at this time. I didn't know that's what Um, happened when you adopted kids. Yeah, because they give up their parental right. Got it. Okay. Wow, I didn't Mm -hmm. even think about that. Yeah, so they have to sign over their rights and they're no longer legally responsible because they're not legally the parent anymore. Yeah, so they had to give up the $75, but Gerald was doing really well. And I think there was also like a machismo pride in like really being the father of these kids and not taking another man's money. And also, I don't think Virginia liked having this monthly reminder of some of the past mistakes she felt like she had made. So she was – they're all looking towards the future. So in March of 1975, Gerald officially became the boy's father. In that summer of 1975, the new family set off on a 2,000-mile road trip to Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania to visit Virginia's father. 
So after a few pleasant days in the sticks, Virginia decided to take the boys to see distant relatives in Philadelphia. And I say distant relatives in quotations because we don't know actually who she was seeing. Exactly. At that point, Gerald was like, hey, we have to get going back to Wyoming. You know, we're set to return there soon. He had to get back to work, obviously. He was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Philadelphia. So here's a plane ticket. You can leave. Bye. Oh, no. That doesn't sound good. That was not the plan when they headed out there. They were supposed to road trip out, road trip back like a family does. So he was like, okay. But he definitely, as he got deeper into his marriages, as you'll see, he has a fourth marriage, sadly. He becomes way more accommodating as things go on. And I think it's just because he gets terrified of losing yet another partner, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So he actually went home and he even sent Virginia pocket money for her and the boys for their travels. And she just kind of stopped communicating with him. And yeah, things were super sketchy. And so basically by September, he's really concerned about, you know, what is now his responsibility to make sure his children are in school. And he's furious. So they're fighting every time she calls. He's like, when are you coming back? So she finally returns like mid-September. So like the kids are like late to school and everything. And when she comes home, she's like totally different than when they left for the vacation. She's cold. She's short with him. She's snappish. And for some reason, while they were away, it seems like she's instructed the boys to start calling him Gerald again and not dad like they were. man. Mm-hmm. So Gerald has no idea what is going on. He's completely perplexed and heartbroken. And he becomes even more so when Virginia drops a bomb and files for divorce only one month after she returns. Yikes. I mean, obviously, we don't know the inner workings of their relationship. So we don't know what was we really don't know going on. What happened. Yeah. Exactly. But it's very suspicious timing because they'd only been married for less than a year and a half. And it had only happened seven months after he officially adopted the kids. So Virginia filed under the vague intolerable indignities. And Gerald got to keep his truck, motorcycle, his old trailer. And he got all of the debts they they started together, I guess. But she got to keep all of their other marital assets. I'm not sure how much there was. I mean, obviously, she had her own house and stuff like that. But I don't know what, like what was in his bank account or what she got to keep. He also promised to keep the boys on his U.S. Steel health insurance, and he would have to pay $150 a month in child support. Oh, so she got double now. Uh Uh-huh. So, yep, her previous amount was $75. So in a matter of months, she had doubled that amount. And unburdened herself. So she it seems like she got some walking around money at least from him when the divorce, and she got double the child support for like, as many years as it took to get Regan to 18. So crazy. Maybe it's always about the money. Maybe I'm a chump, Gerald thought, as he sunk into a deep depression. So he's, I know he got real sad this time. He was alone again. He's completely, like, if you took his word at it, he had no idea why this happened. He is completely confused because he thought he was really happy with Virginia. And also he's really sad about the boys. He got really, really close yeah, to them. Of course. You know? So at this point, he considers suicide. He's like, I'm unlovable, clearly, and I just want to end my life. But he carries on. He moves to a new trailer park. And it was a perfect storm of vulnerability and emotional turmoil. 
that did end up putting him in a prime position for the next whirlwind woman that would walk into his life. Uh Mm -hmm. And she's a doozy. So once again, it was a knock at the door that forever changed the course of Gerald's trajectory. So it was the trailer park manager at the trailer park he's living in. And she was followed by a buxom brunette in a Western pantsuit, cowboy boots, and dangly turquoise earrings. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. It's prime, like, 70s Western wear. So... When she walked in, Gerald looked past the uh, trailer park manager and he's like, not bad. (laughs) So they needed an electrical handyman to basically plug who would end up being Alice, Alice's trailer into like the trailer park power. And Gerald was just the man for the job. So he had finished around lunchtime. So he offered to take, this is from the book. He keeps referring to her as big-breasted. Oh, my God. Yeah, so Gerald offers to take the big-breasted stranger out for burgers at a nearby truck stop. Her name was Alice Prunty. She was a widowed nurse and a single mom scrabbling for a fresh start. So although she was only in her 30s, she'd been married twice and had already had five kids. Whoa. I know. So three of whom were like little kids and two of them were like already grown up, even though she's only in her 30s. She had divorced her first husband, a cop in her native Illinois, and her second, a philandering World War II vet who had drifted from Midwestern grain elevators to Wyoming ranch work, died from alcoholism, leaving her a pile of debt, an infant daughter, and the piddling widows and orphans pension from the U.S. Army. Yikes. Yeah, so she is hard up. So in the two years since her husband Don's death, Alice had struggled mightily. She filed for bankruptcy. She toiled as a barmaid and bus driver. She worked as a nurse for a few months at a psychiatric hospital. And she ended up farming out her kids to relatives on the East Coast when things got tight, which was pretty much all the time. Farming out? Like sending them to farm? No, like – Basically, that's what they called it when you, like, just sent your kids to other places because you couldn't afford them. Oh, really? So, like, she would – yeah. I mean, that's what I think – I hope I didn't make that up. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's not, like, a term I made up. I doubt you made it up. Because I grew up around farms. It's like, farm the kids out. Um, Yeah. So, basically, she would send either the kids to live with her ex-husband, her first one who was still alive – Or they would go to various like aunts and uncles or cousins or something. It was just the type of situation where a family member would help her out because she literally couldn't afford to feed her kids. Got it. Okay. So Gerald was instantly intrigued. While others might have heard a tale about a woman with money troubles and baggage, Gerald was already hooked. In his eyes, Alice was hot, earned her own paychecks, was resourceful, already had kids in her own trailer, and as it turned out, she also loved to fish. Oh my God, poor Gerald. <laughs> Gerald, A, I think his problem is that he waits for women to come to his doorstep. Yep. So maybe if he had been more proactive in his dating efforts. And two, he's like, his only criteria is that they like to fish. Yeah. <laughs> So the next day, he took her and her youngest child out, who was a three-year-old Eliza, for a day of hiking and fishing in the mountains. She told him more of her origin story. She'd been born to an unwed teenage mother in Denver, adopted by a young soldier and his wife, raised in an Illinois farm town, and then she had gotten married when she found herself pregnant at 16, which is why she had already had adult children in her mid-30s. She didn't wallow in misery. She took her lumps and moved forward. She was a survivor, a gritty optimist who believed she could make a better life for her and her kids in Wyoming. 
So Gerald was instantly smitten with his strong young mother. He wanted to be the one to help give her a better life and all that she truly deserved. So over that bicentennial summer of 1976, Gerald and Alice fell deeply in love. So the two fell hard and fast, hardly believing their luck. And on their third date, after having sweaty, satisfying sex for the first time, Ooh, uh, I get that trailer a rockin'. <laughs> For the first time, Gerald told Alice he was falling for her, and she told him that she had to tell him something. So Gerald, of course, thought this is going to be the worst, and he braced himself for another loss. But what she actually told him astounded him. I don't mean to be all clickbaity. Like, you won't believe what he <laughs> no, tells her. I love her it. Now. I actually kind of love it. <laughs> Click here. <laughs> Click here to find out what Alice's secret is. So she had omitted something quite big from her life story when she told it on the previous outing. There had been another husband, her third. His name was Ron Holtz, and she had met him at a veteran psych ward where she had been a nurse and he had been her patient. Ron was a mentally ill junkie, a oh, door gunner in no. Vietnam, mm-hmm, who had been kicked out of the army for being, in her words, nuts. Breaking all professional protocol, she quit her nursing job and ran off to marry him, even though she knew it was wrong. Oh, my God. So she barely knew this guy, too. It's danger, danger, Will Robinson. So they ended up renting a trailer in Cheyenne, and he drove a cab to support them, but it was really to support his habit, she said. Eventually, he started beating her and threatening baby Eliza when she cried. He even boasted about killing babies in Vietnam and told her Eliza was next. Oh, my God. Yep. So one wickedly cold night around Christmas, Alice had shot Ron in self-defense. She shoved his body in a cardboard barrel that she had used to store her Christmas decorations previously and dropped it down an abandoned mine shaft at the edge of a ranch where she had once worked. Then she packed up her possessions and the baby and she beat feet out of town before anybody could catch on. Sounds familiar. Uh-huh. Also, this is some heavy shit to tell somebody on a third date. And they had, like, just had sex for the first time? Mm-hmm. And it's, like, a major buzzkill. been some crazy <laughs> Yeah, can you imagine you're just – you're having post-coital glow and enjoying the moment. And then she's like, hey, P.S., I killed a man. BTW. Remember how I said I was only married twice? Oh, my God. It was actually three times, and I'm also a widow from him, but it's because I shot him. <laughs> um, yeah, so a few months she filed for divorce, claiming abandonment, and it was granted when Ron failed to show up in court. She told all of this to Gerald. Uh-huh. That is yep. wild. Yep, so she started crying while she told him. So he held her tight, and when she said, you know, see – he, you could never love me now. He reassured her he did and he could and that he would never tell a soul. And besides, some assholes who beat women and threaten babies deserve to die. So, I mean, this is obviously Alice's version of the story. Yeah. But he totally bought it, hook, line, and sinker. But he did secretly wonder why she didn't take Eliza and run. Like, why was the murder necessary? As any rational um, person would think. Yeah. 
But he was really, really sprung for Alice already, and he didn't want to question her story or rock the boat with her. So now he felt, honestly, that the two were even more bonded by her deadly secret. Like, he was into this, actually. He's like, now she'll maybe never leave me now that I know her deep and dark secret. Yay. So there's like, it's like kind of like, what was her motivation, though, in telling him? Like, was it that... She was falling in love too and she wanted to unburden herself. Was it that she was like testing him to see like could she push him away or would he still be there for her? Or lastly, was she like, don't fuck with me because I've killed a husband before and I'll kill again. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Big. What did he call her? Busty bosom. My big bosomed lady. <laughs> big breasted, big bosomed. Big breasted bullet brunette. Bullet throwing brunette. Yeah, exactly. So they had met on July 7th, 1976, while Gerald's divorce from Virginia was still being finalized. Three months later in October, a judge finally signed the papers and it was done. So only two weeks after Gerald officially closed the chapter on Virginia, his third wife, he married his fourth, Alice, on November 5th, 1976. So again, he moved hella fast. Yep. What, what's new? Yeah, exactly. All of these people do. All of these crazy people yeah. that we cover move really, really, really fast. Yeah, they're a Jesse. <laughs> They're all Jessies. Guys, don't be a Jesse. Um, also, I say hella all the time, and I only lived in San Francisco for like six years, which I feel like is kind of rude to my Boston roots because I never used Wicked and I was there for like Yeah, but years. Wicked is like you have to use the accent with it, which you don't have. Whereas Hella, I feel like I you don't kind have. of just throw it in to conversation. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so they had a tiny church wedding and Gerald wore the same gray suit he had worn at his wedding to Virginia. Of course, it was only like two years later. Oh. Ugh. So I think that's like four marriages in 10 years, which is surprisingly not our record. <laughs> it's not, huh? No, it's not. So anyways, guys, no big deal. Four marriages in 10 MVP. years is just like... On the love murder scale, that's like a nothing. It's like, it's like a <laughs> six out of 10. Yeah. (laughs) So with no money for a bridal suite, the two spent their frozen wedding night in sleeping bags in the bed of Alice's pickup truck during a Jackson Hole snowstorm. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think it had like a cab on it, but still not my first uh, choice for honeymoon anyone's. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, their honeymoon was actually just an elk hunting trip. So that was one of the things that Gerald super liked about Alice was that she was bloodthirsty. She loved to hunt and field dress, and she took relish in being a carnivore. Run. Run. You would not do well <laughs> with this guy, my little vegan buddy. Run. <laughs> Both of them in opposite directions. Yes, and they should have. It would have saved some lives. So there was little she would shy away from. In fact, the first fight between the two didn't happen until they attended Alice's employer's New Year's Eve party. So apparently Barbara Ann, remember Gerald's first wife, also worked at the hospital, and she had been invited to this party as well, and neither of them knew that Barbara Ann was also going to be there, so that was a surprise. She warmly introduced herself to Alice, and she spoke fondly about the good old days with Gerald, as though they had split amicably and been old friends. So Alice was super rude to her and Barbara Ann finally took the hint and when she left Alice was incensed she was like who the hell does she think she is and she told Gerald old lovers can't come back old love affairs shouldn't be discussed and ex-wives should disappear 
forever. Or else she's going to make her disappear. Exactly. A little bit of foreshadowing right there. So the two cultivated a happy life together, eventually getting enough money together for 20 acres of undeveloped land in the middle of nowhere east of Pavilion, Wyoming. So they lived in Alice's trailer there, and they eventually got hogs and chickens, and they started like a nice little homestead. They even bought like a little boat to take out to the lake for fishing expeditions, and they were having so much fun. Do you want to hear about the worst party in the world that I promise I'll never invite you to? I don't know. Do I? (laughs) Oh, I think you don't, but I'm going to tell you anyway. This is from Ron Franchelle's book. The fun really started that summer when Alice and Gerald invited friends to a chicken slaughtering party. What? Uh-huh. Yep, it's it's exactly like it sounds like. They set up a fetid, grim assembly line. Gerald whacked off their heads. Alice scalded them. The kids picked off the feathers. And the guests singed the pin feathers before everybody pitched in with the butchering and freezer wrapping. City folk never had this kind of fun. <laughs> Your face is so good. Just like processing all of that. What the actual shit? If somebody invited me to a chicken slaughtering party, A, I'd be like, no. But then B, if I like thought it was a joke and I showed up, I I'd just turn around and leave. I just cannot. Like you're that bored, guys. Oh, like what did they get? Did they get to bring home a chicken? Did you get to like bring home what you did or you're just doing this for somebody else? Like I'm not going to butcher it for anyone else. I feel like they're just like, come over and butcher this chicken. We have to like put it in our freezer or sell it. Why would they like let other people take the chicken? I know. I guess you're right. I do not think these types of parties. This is not like a Tupperware party. These don't things don't exist in real life, right? I think, I think (laughs) sadly, I think they do. Oh my God. Please let us know if you've ever attended a chicken slaughter party. I mean, that's like... Even when you like cook lobsters and you like let them run around the kitchen and then you put them in the boiling water still alive and you hear them scream, but it's really their air pockets. Like that's like the same thing. (laughs) That's like two band names, Uh, Chicken Slaughter Party and really their air pockets are like two band names that have come out of this episode. (laughs) Screaming air pockets. Screaming air pockets. (laughs) All right. So with that being said, during these happy times, the only thorn in Alice's side was Virginia. For a woman who had a strict no contact with exes policy, she had a hard time stomaching the $150 a month Gerald sent for children who were not biologically his and the constant contact that required. Oh, no. Yep. So luckily for them, in June 1978, Virginia packed up the boys and headed back to her native Pennsylvania. So they still had to pay, but at least, you know, they weren't like in town. They weren't running into them or anything. And she wasn't like having to see Virginia or the boys, you know? Had they before? Kind of. Um, They were still like in the general vicinity together. And I think that the boys would visit every once in a while. So for three years, she had bounced around from apartment to apartment, job to job, and eventually landed in New Jersey with no great prospects and no real improvement in her life. So Gerald's child support wasn't really stretching like it used to, and she was barely getting by with occasional minimum wage jobs and unemployment. So Virginia was super depressed at this point. She's gaining weight. She's frustrated when one of her boys becomes sick, and there was something wrong with Gerald's insurance. Like, for some reason, I think it's because maybe they were so far out of state. Like, there was some, like, lapses in what was covered and what wasn't covered, and it was just really hard for her to figure out, well, she was already broke. She was barely working, and 
the kid was being hospitalized, you know? So she began to suspect that Gerald and Alice had this secret scheme to reduce their insurance coverage, which there was no evidence that that was true. She, I think she was just frustrated and paranoid. And she began to call Gerald elect constantly and write nasty letters demanding more child support. And she wanted help sorting out the insurance issues. And partly, like, she knew it annoyed Alice, so she kind of enjoyed being a pain in the ass. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So she could not have predicted that she was messing with the wrong fourth wife. We got another so, crazy Alice on our hands. Exactly. Like, you don't want to mess. Like, we, we've got two very headstrong women who love to hunt and are bloodthirsty, and they're going to go head-to-head via some letters, which I'm going to read to you now. So basically what happens is Virginia is contacting Gerald, and and basically Alice takes over, like, the correspondence is, like, kind of like – back up. So this is what Alice writes to Virginia after getting these letters. Virginia, Gerald and I enjoyed your letters. We always do. It appears to me that you have the idea that I try to keep your messages, letters, and phone calls from my husband. We keep no secrets from one another, dot, dot, dot. We have a lot of laughs at your expense. It is very difficult for either one of us to understand how any human being can be quite as brainless as you are. If you get the idea that I don't like you, you're very correct. I have no use for any woman that does not have the mind, backbone, or guts to stand on her own two feet and take care of herself and her kids by herself without raping some poor man's pocket. Whoa. Yeah, she's bringing it. Any woman that can't do that is a worthless piece of garbage. Oh. I worked. (laughs) Yeah. I worked, supported five children, and also had to give my tax money to support leeches like you who are too lazy to go out and get a good enough job to take care of your own. You are worse than most of your kind. Everyone in the family knows how you hounded Gerald to adopt your kids so he could wind up supporting them since since their own father won't. You're quite a con artist. Most lazy trash are. Gerald must have really been trying to hold his marriage together by adopting your boys because he doesn't even like kids. He swallowed your line, hook, line, and sinker, and now he pays for it. He was hoping the power plant, Three Mile Island uh, nuclear plant, then in crisis, was very near Virginia's uh, Pennsylvania apartment, would explode and take you with it. It's really a shame that it didn't. Whoa. Uh Coming in hot? She is. And so there's like some more letters back and forth, like – Virginia, we lost the Virginia letter, but she basically comes back and is is like, you didn't take care of your kids and they're all fucked up and I know that. And then like Alice writes back to her, like essentially saying that Gerald didn't like her, it had nothing to do with the kids. And basically they are just antagonizing each other over these letters. And then it says, a few days later, another letter arrived in Virginia's mailbox. Five pages long, it was also unsigned and undated. It was Gerald's handwriting, but it oozed with Alice's unmistakable vitriol and lacerating style. Had she drafted the letter for Gerald to copy in his own hand? Why would she even try to make it appear that somebody else had written it? Regardless, the letter took a direct shot at Virginia's heart. In unambiguous terms, it outlined the Uden's plan to take what was most valuable to Virginia, her money and her son. Virginia, 
Our records show that we made the September payment. It seems to me that every time you move anymore, you forget to leave a forwarding address. I can't help it if the mail gets lost because you want to hide. I guess it's time I have a say about the harassment we have received in the last three and a half years. Up till now, I've been easygoing and let things slide. Every time I turn around anymore, you are threatening to go to court for something, so I guess that's what I'm going to do also. I have never liked the idea of not seeing the boys or contacting them. This will change. I have never been around a more selfish, domineering, scheming person than you. You never had any intention of wanting a father for your boys. Your only interest was the money. I'm not sure you are a good influence on the boys or mentally capable where they are concerned. You seem to have some pretty sick ideas about a father-son relationship. I don't really know what that's referring to. It may interest you to know that I've been seeing an attorney for some months now to see what we can do to straighten this mess out. I've been reluctant to start proceedings because of possible harm it could do to my sons. Since you insist on this course of action, I am proceeding also. I will insist on visitation rights. You live too far away for weekly visits. They will have to come for the summer and holidays, such as Christmas and Easter. Of course, while they were here, the support money would stop. My attorney feels a judge would be very interested in your dirty, underhanded dealing. I want the chance to be dad to my boys that I was not allowed to be. Having the boys here will give me the chance to help them grow up and become men instead of street bums or mama's boys tied to their apron strings. Richard and Regan, yeah. Richard and Regan carry my name, I think, and I tend to do that they do so with honor. When a child reaches the age of 14, at this time, Richard and Regan were 10 and 11. They can choose to live with either parent, and there isn't anything the other one can do about it. Alice and I intend to do everything we can to show my sons that they would be much happier living with us. We have so much more to offer them than you ever will. I intend to see my boys grow up having some real fun in life. We are really looking forward to their coming to be with us and having the time so that Alice can get to know her two new sons. Alice is really good with kids, and I'm sure that she will have them loving her in no time. There is nothing that will give me more pleasure than watching them grow up just like me. There is one way you could stop all of this, and this is to have the adoption set aside and declared null and void. I don't think you'll do that. You worked and schemed too hard to give that up now. You have no honor or self-respect. No, no one on welfare does. Oh. Whoa. Yeah. So, so basically, what they're stating in these letters is not actually what they want. This is a gambit that they're playing to try to get her to put aside the adoption so yeah. they don't have to pay the more money. Yeah. So in April 1980, Virginia files a last-ditch complaint with New Jersey's domestic relationships, uh, domestic relations court. She claims that Gerald's $150 a month child support check was sporadic and inadequate, and a judge ruled against her when Gerald's attorney showed receipts that he paid it faithfully every month. So now she's broke, depressed, and out of options. Virginia moves back to Wyoming to live with her mother, but which puts her back in contact with Alice. Of course. Yep. So the Uden's plan to rid themselves of Virginia and the responsibility of the boys had gloriously backfired. She's like back in their backyard. Oh, no. Uh huh. And now that she lives locally, and they had been made such a big deal about like sharing custody to threaten her. They can't really like not take the boys eventually. So now this is like Alice's worst nightmare. They still have to pay support. And now she has to have these like what she considers brats in her home. Yeah. Now. So the two young boys would sleep over at the Udins every once in a while. And the visits were mostly uneventful, except for one time they told their grandmother, that's Virginia's mother, that Alice and Gerald had locked them in a travel trailer at night and forced them to sleep on a dirty mattress. And another time, Gerald had apparently taken them on a fishing trip. Like, they're fully clothed. It's a fishing trip. Yeah. And when they get to the middle of, like, the coldest, deepest part of the lake, he makes them strip down to their underwear and jump in to practice their swimming. 
and he just starts they don't swim very well and it's very deep and then he just like motors the boat away so the kids are like struggling to tread water and they're screaming and they're crying and they're begging him to come back and eventually Alice actually like calls to him from the shore and is like go back and get them so like he might have just let them drown if it had been up to him oh my god Mm-hmm. And that's – Alice is not a, a warm and cozy person. No. So if she was like, go get them, then this was particularly Brutal. heinous. Yeah. So shortly after that incident, in early September 1980, Virginia received a curious phone call from Gerald. In a kind, reconciliatory tone, Gerald told her he had a friend who could lend her a trailer for free so she could return to New Jersey to pick up the like the remainder of her belongings that were still out there. Okay. She, she was going to rent a trailer from another woman, but it was going to cost her like a few hundred dollars or something. So he was like, basically, I'll give you this trailer for free. You can save some money. And also, why don't you bring the boys over? I'll take them bird hunting, which was something I guess they really love to do. So she's like, okay, and they arranged to meet at 2 p.m. the next day at an isolated corner about a half mile from the Uden's place because he said that Alice didn't want to see her or the boys because they've had this contentious relationship. Okay. So she's like, that makes sense. Like, I don't want to see Alice either. So a free trailer was happy news, but the timing was very suspicious. She had just called her attorney to start figuring out how they could, like, start paperwork to ask for more support money from Gerald. Really? Yeah, so things were not good between them. So for Gerald to like all of a sudden be like calling to be nice to her was very weird. But she thought like maybe he's hoping that if he does this nice thing for me and he's better with the boys that I'll drop the request, yeah. you know? So she's like, I'm going to I'm gonna do this anyways because like at worst she's just going – He she never imagined he would like do anything to the kids obviously, you know? So at 1.30 p.m., Claire Martin, who's Virginia's mother and the boy's grandmother, got the boys her old 22, which actually was the gun that they talked about at the beginning that yep. she brought to his house. Yep. Mm-hmm. And a box of shells for the bird hunting expedition and she warned her daughter to not ruin the boys' trip by arguing with Gerald about money. So they drove out of the driveway in Claire's old County Squire station wagon and it was the last time Claire would ever see her family alive. What? Mm-hmm. It's about to get it's about to get brutal. So Virginia and the boys arrived early, but Gerald was actually already at the corner waiting for them. He told Virginia that the guy with the trailer was running late, so she said she'd give them a ride to the bird hunting spot and wait while he and the boys hunted. Gerald slid into the front seat and directed Virginia to drive another five or six miles up the road to a remote spot he knew was great for bird hunting. Uh, Virginia pulled off to a desolate area next to a canal. After she pulled over, the boys spilled out of the car, hooping and hollering while Gerald put together an old gun and loaded it. So he was using that old twenty-two. He got off a couple shots into the salt saves just to make sure the gun wouldn't jam. When the crack of the shots faded away, he briefly listened to see if he could hear a car. Hearing none, he put the muzzle of the gun against the back of Virginia's head. And fired. What? She went down. Yeah. She immediately just died on impact and went down like a ton of bricks. So he had been firing the gun already. Like he had been getting off some test shots. So at first, the kids have no idea that he shot their mom. They were kind of like running around, you know? So 11-year-old Richard had been playing with some bullets on the open tailgate and Gerald approached him 
put the gun directly behind his left ear and fired without Richard ever knowing what was coming for him or that her, his mother had just been murdered. I feel like it's probably like, so the kid, kind of for the best. I think it's for the best. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, speaking of which, Regan, though, had seen his older brother's murder. So he's obviously terrified this poor kid. So he ended up just like panicking and he, he ran in the first direction that he could think of and he ran straight into the canal and he was he was obviously like screaming and terrified and Gerald just like a f- fucking bastard followed him calmly that's like as a hunter mhm exactly that's what exactly what they said it was yeah. like he was like stalking a wounded animal yeah he just followed him into the canal aimed and shot a little boy who he had legally sworn to protect and love and after he was like bitching to Alice to Virginia. No, Alice about her ex who she killed and saying, you know, anyone who, you know, beats children or women doesn't uh-huh. deserve like so ridiculous. Oh, he's just such an asshole. I mean, what a psychopath piece of human garbage. For like what? For $150 a month? Like that's that to keep your wife? Oh, I was going to say obviously he's under her spell, you know what I mean? Because she's the mm-hmm. one that's so angry about the 150 bucks. I don't think he would have been buying it on his own. I think psychologically he was – I mean, I'm not giving him any excuses obviously, but psychologically it sounds like he was very damaged from his divorces and he Mm -hmm. wanted to keep – stay married to Allison by all costs, you know? Yeah. And even when she's like, you need to kill that woman and her two kids, he's like, or I'll leave you. Done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. So later Gerald would say the killing was easier than it should be. It wasn't at all like Hollywood with great gusts of blood and brain matter. The little 22 bullets just ricocheted like a deadly pinball in their brain. So essentially what happened is that the tiny bullet goes in and then it just ricochets around the brain. It doesn't like come back out the other side if the bullet's small enough. And it just like scrambles the brain. That is so crazy. That's what a 22 does. Yeah, I mean, it did in this case in the very least. But I also remember, because I grew up in a farm, guys, um, my dad would shoot like a, a cow or a bull with a twenty two first to like stun them and get them down. And then he would slit their throats. And it was exactly like that. It was like it didn't come out the other side or anything. It's just I think it's like small enough to go in and do a, a serious bit of damage, but not like not like those bigger caliber bullets that you see like blast through people crazy Mm -hmm. so that's essentially what happened it it killed them pretty much immediately so he quickly shoved them in the back of claire's station wagon because they were still technically like just off a road it was a remote road so the chances were less that people would come down but it was possible still so he immediately put them into the station wagon which is just it's like he doesn't even it's like hunting to him. He just heaves Virginia's corpse in with his two adopted children and just like gets back on the road. Like it's nothing. So he said at this point that he was relieved the plan worked, but he felt confused, cold-blooded, guilty, and paranoid. He had saved himself $14,000 in what it would have cost him in child support before Regan turned 18. He solved the problem of Virginia, but most importantly, like we were saying, Alice could stay with him forever now that she had disappeared like Alice believed all ex-wives should. Alice would be happy and that would make Gerald happy. Yep. Mm-hmm. So he talked about that so in went- jail after or? Yes, okay. he did. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he actually um, ha- like wrote and interviewed with Ron Franchelle for this book that's, for quite a while. That's cool. 
Yeah. So he went back to his house where he transferred the bodies into his pickup truck and he hid the bodies with some empty feed sacks and weighed them down with rocks in the back. And he had kind of screwed up because Alice's, the the boys' heads weren't really leaking where their, you know, wounds were. Virginia's wound bled in the station wagon. Uh, But for now, he obviously couldn't deal with that right away. So he just hid the station wagon behind his hog barn. Jesse, and is he not concerned at all that like the last time, the last activity they were like doing was taking grandma's car to like go hunting with him? Like did they, that's not a, that's not a plan. That's like absolutely idiotic. Yeah. I mean, that's when I was reading this too. I was like, wait, Claire knew that's where they were going. It's not a plan. This doesn't make any no. sense. It's like last yep. scene hunt, hunting birds. <laughs> yeah. So basically, Alice's parents had moved a trailer onto their property, and Alice had been over at her parents. So he stopped by and he um, told them that he was going to go bird hunting till dark. And he hit the road at 2.30, which is insane to me because he was meeting Virginia at just before 2. So that means he did all of this in a half hour. Yeah. Shot, shot, shot. Load him in the car. Load him into the pickup truck. Hit the road. It's crazy. So he drove out to some place called Hidden Hand Mind to dump the bodies. So he had considered incinerating them at the U.S. Steel Blast Furnace where he worked, but he was worried about the telltale smell of burning human flesh. Yeah. I mean, that's something Um, to think about, huh? Yeah. Somebody else is going to be working at the the steel mine at that time and figure it out. So, you know, he didn't do that idea. He also briefly considered feeding the bodies to his hogs bit by bit. That probably would have been very smart. Yeah, I guess he didn't know if he had the stomach for butchering them. And also, I guess the um, hogs can't digest human teeth. They can do the bones, but they can't eat the teeth for some reason, at least according to this book. And so he, like, didn't want to have to, like, go through their shit and pick out the teeth of the family. (laughs) Your face. (laughs) So basically, he decides that he doesn't want to pick teeth out of hog shit. I don't feel bad for him. No, I do not either. And he figures the mind would be perfect. After all, Alice's husband, Ron, had been never found. So seems like it's a good place to throw people. She was abandoned. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he basically just like pulls them in about 20 feet and kind of like throws them down the crevice. And he gets back on the road like just past 4 p.m. He was divested of the bodies, but he still had the station wagon to dispose of. He also knew, like we were just discussing, he'd shortly have to figure out what the hell he was going to say to Claire Martin once again when she obviously started looking for the family. Not a plan. That's not a plan. Not a plan. It was after 9 p.m. that Claire started really worrying, and naturally, her first call was to Gerald, who asked her where Virginia was. Claire was taken aback, like... That's why she called Gerald. Gerald claimed that Virginia and the kids had never showed up at all, that he had waited for almost an hour and then just given up and went about his day. I mean, she had to not believe him, right? No way. If they wouldn't have shown up, he would have called them her hours ago. If he was quicker, he could have thought of that on his own and called her first, but he's obviously not right. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Gerald. 
<laughs> so Gerald even joined Claire and her friend Marie that evening, driving around town to search for Virginia and the boys. They called the hospitals, the police station. They checked at the drive-in. I guess, like Virginia had said, that maybe this evening she was going to take them to a movie. So they went to the drive-in. They went to the indoor movie theaters to check, but no one had seen the young family. Obviously. When Claire decided to go to the sheriff, Gerald made his excuses and left, of course. The sheriff's office was already locked up for the night, so she went home to try to get some rest, and she just prayed that they were going to show up or the phone would ring. Claire Martin wouldn't have a truly refreshing night of sleep for the rest of her life. Oh, no. How old was mm -hmm. she? She was in her 50s, at most early 60s. So after Gerald got home that night, he drove the station wagon up towards the mountains with Alice following behind in her tiny red Pinto. So Gerald steered the car onto a one-lane dirt road and parked it over the Trout Creek Canyon. He shifted the gear handle into neutral and he pushed the car into the gorge. But instead of a – like it was supposed to careen over the edge of the canyon and drop 100 feet. But at the last minute, the car turned and ended up lodged in a boulder only 100 feet from the road in plain sight. <laughs> So what I've learned from our podcast so far is apparently it's very hard to dispose of cars after you commit murder. And it's hard to remember it's hard to strangle someone. Yeah. And it's hard to strangle or somebody. It just sounds neck. like very just it's unpleasant. Yeah. Just don't do it. No, no one should do it. <laughs> don't you shouldn't have to destroy um, evidence because you shouldn't kill anyone. Because you'll look like an idiot. Yeah. You're gonna look like an idiot. We're gonna tell a story about you. And we're gonna laugh at yeah, you. And you're gonna look like an idiot. So don't do it. Just don't do it. No. Just don't do it. Um, so, yeah. So, he had no choice now. They, they, like, could not move the car. It was totally stuck. So, basically, he just bashed in the uh, the reflective, like, taillights. And then he covered the, the car with, like, pine boughs. And he removed the license plates, of course. And that's it. That's all they do. They did. So, the two murderers drove home only hours before dawn. And they fell asleep in each other's murderous arms. Were they just, like, so content with themselves? I think they were exhausted, but probably exhilarated because I think they thought they got away with it. Fuckers. I know. So, of course, Claire immediately reports her missing family to the police, and she also hangs posters all over every surface on town. But then the police got a call from a woman who said that she was renting her trailer to uh, Virginia to return to New Jersey. Basically, before this whole trailer thing with Gerald, she is – was like paid a deposit down to this woman to rent her trailer. And even though she didn't take the trailer, they took that as evidence that she was planning on returning to New Jersey. Yeah, of course. So yeah, the cops were basically like, okay, this is just a, a grandmother who's just gotten a little wild in her thinking. And her daughter just went back to New Jersey and she's being crazy, you know? And it, I remember earlier you had said that Gerald wrote in that note that Virginia was always running away. Exactly. And she was always leaving town. Yeah. She was always moving. She never had a job. So it wasn't uncharacteristic of her to just like blow town. Oh, which is just such a bummer for Grams. Mm -hmm. Eight days after Virginia and the boys vanished, a male Graham arrived at Claire's trailer. On September 20th, she received word that V.U. Martin, an unfamiliar rendering of Virginia Uden's name, came from 556 Corolla Creve Kerr, Illinois. Huh? It was a – that's like the address. It was like 556 Corolla Street, Creve Kerr, Illinois. It was addressed to C. Martin and said, Mom, 
Sorry, I have worried you. I am in trouble. The boys are okay. Cover for me. Say I am in California. We'll write when possible. So at first, Claire's a little relieved, but then she's really suspicious and perplexed. So if this was true, why had Virginia left $1,000 in cash that was her savings in in her room at Claire's place? Yeah. Like, why would she sign Virginia at the end of the mailgram when she always, always, always wrote just gin when she was talking to her mom? Because that's what her mom called her. Oh, Yeah. So she was immediately suspicious about this. So Claire replied with her own mailgram to the Illinois address and basically begged Virginia to call her. Like she still had hope because she wanted it to be her. Yeah. So she's like, hey, if this is you, just like call me, collect, call me anytime. I just want to hear your voice, you know? Uh. So the very next night, the day after she had received this suspicious mailgram, Gerald was arrested for loitering outside of Claire Martin's laundry. So Claire Martin ran like a laundromat. So he was fined and released. And what he was fined for was having a homemade weapon. He had a lead weight tied with a rope in his pocket. What? Yep. And so at that time in this county, it was illegal to carry a concealed weapon. So that's the charge they brought him up on. But to Gerald's luck, the officers didn't connect him with the disappearances because I I don't think they were really taking it seriously, the disappearances. And they didn't even tell Claire that her son-in-law, his her erstwhile son-in-law, had been stalking her and staking out her laundry with a weapon. What is a lead brick with a rope? It's like a, it's just like a lead weight. It's, so it's basically something you would swing and hit somebody in the face with. Okay. That's- so it was like a homemade thing. Like I think lead weights are used in like fishing and different boating activities, you know? So crazy that he was just like loitering and then they caught him with that in his pocket. Exactly. There was no reason for him to have it in the middle of the night walking around Mm -hmm. outside of a laundromat. So two days later, Claire receives a typed letter. This one mysteriously postmarked from Riverton, Wyoming, which was like the very same town that she lived in. So I'm going to read this letter to you guys. Uh Uh-oh. Yep. Mom, hope I haven't worried you too much. I'm in trouble. It's best if you don't know about it. I had to leave in a hurry. There wasn't time to tell you. Last Wednesday, I stopped at a drugstore in Illinois long enough to buy some things. I gave one of the clerks some money to send you a message. I hope you got it. I couldn't take time to do it myself. We're with friends in Pennsylvania. Now, you don't know them. I think we'll be all right for a while. I have money for now. That's why I'm in trouble. I'm sending this in a way that can't give away my location. They may be watching you. It is safer for you if you don't know exactly where we are right now. If anyone asks, tell them we're in California. I need to figure out how to get our things and money from our house in New Jersey and how to get support money. When I do, I'll let you know. We're safe for now, but we'll have to keep going. We'll be in touch when possible. It's important that we don't attract attention, so we'll have to be careful. I'm counting on you to cover for me. Take good care of Freddie and George. The kids miss them and you. So I think what they were trying to do was also kill Claire and make it seem like some mysterious thing that Virginia had gotten them involved in killed everybody, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's not super bad. Because if the cops find the notes, then they're like, uh… It seems like this woman got herself in trouble. She got herself involved in something. You know, she didn't have a great record of employment. She'd moved around a lot. Like maybe they would have believed it, you know? 
Yeah. So Claire brought the troubling letters to the police, but instead of investigating her concerns, the captain just took it as a sign that Virginia had really just skipped town and ordered the investigation closed. Isn't that crazy? I mean, he was just like, yeah, I guess she was in trouble. I know, but it doesn't surprise me because if you think about the way that cops back then treated women and if she was a single mom, you know how they treat, mm. you know, sex workers. If they go missing, they don't yeah. even do anything. So I can totally That's see terrible. all those cop bros being like, no, she probably just got herself in trouble, met a new guy, skipped town. I can totally see that happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was – I don't even think Claire knew that they had closed the investigation. I don't oh. think they told her. They were just like – they just like closed the file on her. So officially, less than two weeks after their disappearance, no one in law enforcement was looking for Virginia Richard or Regan at all. Whoa. And so what's crazy is that at this point, if if Alice and Gerald had just let it go, if they had just not done a single thing else at this point, I think they would have gotten away with it. Really? Like, it was completely closed. Yeah. So at this point, a couple days after the case is officially closed, Claire receives yet another letter, which I'll read to you too. Ugh. Okay, so a couple days later, September 25th, another letter arrives, not from Virginia, but from the Corolla address in Illinois. It was handwritten and dated September 24th, but not signed. It contained the two urgent mailgrams Claire had sent to Virginia. Enclosed are two telegrams that have been sent to my address. There is no one by the name of V.U. Martin at this address. A lady came into the place where I worked and asked if I would send this telegram for her. She gave me some money and the message and left. That is my only contact. I would appreciate no further messages be sent to this address. It is very annoying. Thank you. So, yeah, at this point, Alice and Gerald are obviously trying to, like, cover their tracks. And it's, like, really ridiculous because they're just, like, digging in very deep. Yep. So now more than ever, Claire obviously believes that these things are part of a cruel hoax. So she's like, okay, something's going on. This is really fishy. She finally, finally goes to like, the sheriff actually believes her this time. He's like, this seems weird. This seems like somebody who would do somebody a favor would all of a sudden then write back and be like, it's really annoying. Don't like write to this address anymore, you know? So Man, they just got themselves that- in that. They just turned the whole thing around. Exactly. So the afternoon, the sheriff calls the Creve or Crev Corps um, police department and he's like, hey, I'm kind of working this like missing case and I'm interested to see if you could go to this address and like check it out and maybe like find out what the hell is going on with these messages. Then I could just kind of like tick this box, you know. So the house was vacant, um, but it wasn't hard to find the last tenant, a 20 something woman named Thea Thomas. So this is from the book. As a professional courtesy two weeks later, two agents from Illinois' Division of Criminal Investigation knocked on the door at Thea Thomas's new apartment in Peoria Heights. They had a few questions. Did she know a VU Martin? Nope. Did she send a mailgram to Claire Martin? Yes. Why did she send it? Because her mother had called and asked her to do it. Did she say why? Because she had a friend in trouble and she needed to get a message to her mother in the form of a telegram. Did her mother tell her exactly what to say? Mm Mm-hmm. Did she sign at VU Martin? Yes. Did she know that VU Martin and Virginia Uden were the same person and she was a missing person? Not at the time, but she did now. So basically, like, what happened next? So she received two telegrams from Claire Martin. What did she do with them? She called her mother. What did her mother tell her to do? Send the telegrams to her mom with an unsigned note telling Claire to stop sending them. She'd take care of it. 
So what happened next? She learned the story of Virginia and the boy's disappearance, and she was shocked. So what did she do after that? She called her mom enraged that she had been dragged into some weird sham thing about missing people she'd never met. Her mom promised to visit the sheriff and straighten this misunderstanding out. And what was her mother's name? Alice fucking Uden. Oh, my <laughs> God. First degree of separation. Are you kidding me? Why your daughter? Like, you didn't even get your daughter to get somebody else to do it? Wow. It's crazy. So dumb. So this should be the end. I mean, they should be caught, yeah. right? Yes. Not not even close yet. Not even close, which is crazy. So after the Illinois police visit Thea, she tips off Alice and Gerald. Like, she calls them as soon as the police leave. And she's like, hey, guys, the cops know now, now. So immediately, Alice and Gerald, like, go on the charm offensive. And they go to the sheriff's office to admit to it before they can get in trouble for it. Okay. But how can you admit to that without mm-hmm. getting in trouble for it? So Alice cries crocodile tears, and she said she had orchestrated the sham correspondence without Gerald or Thea's knowledge because she believed Virginia was trying to frame them for some crime. Basically, she said that she believed that Virginia was always working a scam, like she scammed Gerald into adopting her sons. She scammed the the country with her welfare she is always a scammer and that she thinks she was she did something to like disappear and to make it look bad for Alice and Gerald okay she said the confessing now was the honest thing and she didn't want her husband or daughter to get in trouble for her own misguided actions and the cops are obviously still suspicious but they have no further evidence so they just let them go wow I know. So to make matters worse, at this point, the station wagon had been reported to the sheriff's office three separate times by three separate, like, hikers and hunters over the course of a month. So, like, over a course of a month, three different people called this in. And this is back in the day where you had to literally, like, go to a convenience store or go home and use your landline landline to call in. And they didn't go up there for a month to check it out. So this like trove of evidence was just sitting there in the woods for a month. And then when the deputy finally does go up, they determine that other than the busted taillights, no violence had occurred to or within the car. How can they determine that? Didn't their bodies get thrown in the back of it? Exactly. So he at this point asked the sheriff if he wants the crime lab to come through or like to bring the car to the crime lab so they can go through it. And the sheriff's like, nope, just tow it back to the owner. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. So they broke the chain of custody and just dropped the busted up station wagon at Claire's. So Claire, of course, immediately searches the car. And when she finds a blood stain in the back seat, she calls the deputies back out to show them. She's like – Listen here, knuckleheads, there's a red blood stain back here. And so they're still skeptical until she pulls up the mats to show them even more dried red material. And then finally, she like in a, you know, a fit of genius, she manages to like, it was one of those cars like that you could remove the seats. Uh-huh. And she picks the entire seat up and it reveals crusty blood, bone and brain matter. How? The way Virginia was laying, it had like seeped under the seats. I think he threw her like on the floor in the back. And so her head had been leaking in like underneath the, the seats, you know? Shit. Ugh. So, of course, now they're like, oh, shit. I guess we got to take this seriously. It's like, no shit, Sherlock. Oh, my God. They're like, thanks, old lady. Yeah. Thanks for doing so by job. the time the. 
<laughs> By the time the crime scene techs get a hold of it, a whole month after the disappearance, there was more blood than the naked eye could see and way more than a person could lose and survive. Of course, it matched Virginia's type A blood. Uh, Gerald's fingerprints were in and on the car, but Claire did have to admit that he had used the car occasionally when he drove the boys around. So there could be very normal reasons for his prints being in and around the car. Yeah. So November 5th, 1980 marked Gerald and Alice's fourth anniversary among scrutiny from the police. Finally, the noose was tightening around their necks as Gerald had been arrested outside of Claire's laundry. They finally were connecting those dots. Yeah, they had found Virginia's car, obviously, and the evidence in it. The mailgram and the letters had been exposed. And finally, the cops were asking difficult questions. I mean, guys, what else do you need this to be (laughs) delivered on a fucking platinum platter? Like, what? (laughs) With a baby spoon? Right. As a gift to Alice, Gerald decided to do the unthinkable but potentially safe thing. He needed to move the bodies to a place no one would ever find them. So eight warm weeks had passed and the corpses were a rotting mess decomposed and they had been feasted on by animals. Like these poor people. And so he basically just steeled himself to do it for Alice and he shoved the bodies into garbage bags. And then into two 55-gallon drums, one for Virginia and one for the little boys to share for eternity. Mm. So I hate, sad. I hate like a corpse drum. I know. It's I know. always not good. Ugh, it's just the, the cruelty and the lack of caring, know. you know? While like Claire's running so, around trying to like solve the crime by herself. Literally by herself. Yeah. No one is helping her. So at 3.30 in the morning, he motored his boat out to the deepest part of Fremont Lake. And without ceremony or prayer, of course, he rolled the drums off into the near-frozen lake. So he had put – he had shot holes in the um, drums before he rolled them in so that the water would fill, you know, the drums and they would sink to the bottom. Okay. When he got home from his dark task, Alice was up waiting and he confirmed to her that it was done. And she just said, God, you smell like death warmed over and went to sleep. Okay. You're welcome. You're welcome. Happy anniversary. (laughs) Um, So the police questioned the Udins over and over and over again, but the two stuck to their lies religiously. They dummied up for real. So over the next two years, the police chief believed that Gerald and Alice were the killers. Of course. Duh. But they could never connect the dots. So without bodies or a murder weapon, there was little to go on. As a legal Hail Mary on October 26, 1982, the county attorney even convened a rare grand jury to consider indictments against Gerald and Alice, but it went nowhere and was dismissed after only one day of testimony where Alice and Gerald invoked their Fifth Amendment rights a collective 59 times. Whoa. Yep, they're just like... Fifth Amendment, plead Fifth Amendment, plead Fifth Amendment. And so, like, the jury there was like, yeah, you're not getting anything from them and you have no evidence. So, like, they they seem like shitty fucking people, but there's nothing we can do about it, you know? Whoa. Yep. So at a complete dead end, the cops put the case on the back burner and the Udins decided to move to Missouri in 1986, which legally they could do because they had never been charged with anything and they'd never been more than a person of interest, yep. you know? Yep. Where they moved so to the from Ozarks? 19- Oh, I don't know where in Missouri, actually. I was just like, nebulous farm in Missouri. (laughs) 
1980, when Virginia and the boys disappear, to 2013, when the body of Ron Holtz is discovered, Alice and Gerald remain scot Oh, my God. So for all of those years, they're just out there living their best lives. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So Ron Franchell, who wrote this book, did an amazing job of detailing all of the cold case efforts in their intervening 33 years. But it was about 200 pages of the book, so I'm going to do my best to summarize the most salient points okay, here. Okay, perfect. Which also, if you guys are into cold cases and, you know, how they fumble and how they eventually get solved, this is a great book for you because he really does go into detail about, like, all the different cops who try to solve it and, like, what they went through. It's really interesting. Um, so in 1986, Gerald and Eliza and Alice – so that was little Eliza, Alice's youngest child – moved to Missouri. So after Gerald repeatedly hits Eliza, who's now a teenager, for talking back, CPS Ugh. finally remove her from the home. Yeah. Ugh, this poor girl. So she goes to live in a group home slash orphanage. And while she's there, she's questioned by the police – now, she was only eight when the disappearances happened, so she doesn't have a lot that, like, she really remembers, but she does very distinctly remember that she found these license plates, two Wyoming license plates, and she knows that they're Wyoming because they had, like, a horse on them. Okay. And she said she liked horses, and so she wanted to keep them to play with. And her mom saw that she had them and freaked out and destroyed them. And she has no idea what happened to them. She just knows that they disappeared and it made her cry. So the cops are like, okay, yep, that was the license plates that disappeared off the station wagon. In 1993, Alice's second oldest child, Ted, tells police a hair-raising tale about the disappearance of Alice's real third husband, a man named Ron, that the police hadn't even known existed. So when Ted was in junior high, it was his job, also he's 13 years old, to drive his mom to her bartending job in Buford, Wyoming, and he's only 13. He becomes his mother's chauffeur and drinking buddy. Like she starts drinking with her tiny, just barely teenage son. Who's driving her around. Exactly. So the, he said that they would like crack open like a bottle of something in a six pack and drive around together. Whoa. That's insane. Whoa. So, yeah. So one of these nights that they're like out, you know, binge drinking and letting a 13-year-old drunk drive the car, she tells him in a drunken haze that she shot her abusive, drug-addled asshole boyfriend. And so Ted doesn't even – I don't even think he knows really that they were married. He just knows it was some sort of so like significant other yeah, yeah. and he remembers that his name was Ron. So Ted believed that the two of them had been living in a trailer in Cheyenne, but he wasn't sure of it at the time because he had been living on the East Coast with other relatives at that time. Okay. How, however, he did remember that his mother told him that she had dumped the guy in an abandoned mine on the Remount Ranch. Apparently, like, when they lived on the Remount Ranch with Don, her second husband, was the only, like, happy time in the kid's life okay. because they got to, like, run around this ranch and have fun. So she was like, you know that – that ranch you love to live on. And remember, there was that shaft where we would like put all the dead animals down. That's where I threw them. So he knew exactly where it was. Crazy. So this, of course, piqued the detective's interest. They're like, wow, this could be something solid that we can yeah. work with, you know? So they contacted Thea, who was the one who had inadvertently gotten involved with the mail fraud issue. And she also confirmed the entire story, saying that her mother had confessed to her while sewing her prom dress. Oh, my God. These poor kids. I know. 
These kids had been through it. So the only detail that she knew more than Ted about was that his last name had been Holt or Holtz, which was great because that was actually like a lead they could follow, you okay. know? Detectives located a marriage certificate from September 17th, 1974 for Ronald Lee Holtz and Alice Prunty in Adams County, Colorado. So then they tracked down Ron's family and interviewed them. And the story is very sad. Oh, so I'm about no. to tell you about sad Ron. Yeah. So growing up, Ron was frequently beat by his father, and he had been hospitalized more than a couple times for behavioral problems and emotional instability. Like he had been in and out of psych hospitals by the time he was only 16. So around that time, he drops out of high school and he got into drugs. At 18, he was drafted into the Vietnam War. So that's not going to help anything. Before he left, he fell in love with and proposed to a 15-year-old friend of his sister's. Uh, Um, I mean, he's only 18, so it's not that creepy, but still, oh. So he had drug-induced freakouts while he was stationed in Vietnam. And his obviously his mental health deteriorated even more. And eventually it got so bad that the military sent him home, which was like, you're not crazy enough to fight in Vietnam, which is insane. Yeah. So upon his return, he married his young sweetheart and she immediately got pregnant. Only three weeks after his return, he attempted suicide by overdosing on antihistamines. And he landed... Yeah, I didn't even know you could do I didn't that either. You'd have to take uh, so many, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he landed in his first of many, many, many visits to the veteran psychiatric hospital. And things only got worse when the little baby girl who was named Sharon was born in April 1971. In the waiting room after the birth, Ron punched his father-in-law in the face and then prohibited his in-laws from seeing the baby. Whoa. Which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that poor woman, can you imagine just having given birth and your insane husband assaults your father? No. That's no horrible. Horrible. So for the remaining year, he attempted suicide multiple times. He beat his wife savagely after she had an OBGYN visit because the male doctor touched her private parts. Whoa. What a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Total psychopath. He also threatened her, you know, his father-in-law, her father, several times. In December 1971, Ron was finally committed to a psych ward after attacking one of his sister's friends. That was like his first like court-mandated appointment. At this point, his 17-year-old wife packed up six-month-old Sharon, and she took this opportunity to finally divorce the 20-year-old psychopath. Thank God. Yeah. So she got out. She raised Sharon. Um, she eventually remarried, and the the new husband adopted Sharon. Okay. Good. Yep. So over the next three years, Ron was in and out of jail and psych wards. In 1974, he landed in a small Sheridan, Wyoming psych hospital where he met a lovely 35-year-old single mother named Alice Prunty. He was only 24 and she was 35. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And she was also his nurse. Yep, exactly. Yeah. When he was discharged, Alice unexpectedly quit and the two were married only 13 days later. Oof. The couple visited Ron's family a few times, but no one expected the relationship to last. Ron's calls and visits stopped completely after Christmas on 19- 1974. 
but the family just assumed he had OD'd on heroin or had finally picked a fight with someone bigger and badder than him and paid the price. Oh, man. It it didn't matter. They were so unconcerned with their son and brother who had been such an asshole all of his life that no one even reported him missing. Whoa. No one reported him missing? Not even a little bit. Like, they just never talked about him. They were like, you know what? He finally got himself in trouble. I think that he had caused a lot of heartbreak for the family. So they just let it go, which is crazy. So crazy. So in 1995, Wyoming sheriffs asked the DCI, which is the Division of Criminal Investigation, to help. They re-interview Ted. This time, Ted tells them he thinks he can lead them to the exact mine on the property and that he also firmly believes that Gerald killed his own children to get out of paying child support at the urging of Alice, of course. Like Ted's like, you don't know my bloodthirsty mother. She 100% put him up to Yes. That. In 2001, the sheriff that had been overseeing the case, Dave King, nearly ODs on evidence cocaine. What? Yeah. So they go through like Dave King had come up like with a case. Like he started working it when he was like just like a patrolman and then a detective. And then he had finally become the sheriff. But there was like a lot of things that they talk about that took it a toll on him and one of the things was trying to solve this case and so he basically like started drinking a lot and then he turned to drugs and then like one night he's like hmm there's a lot of like cocaine in the evidence locker and just did all of it and almost died oh my god yeah so of course they find him in like in the evidence locker like basically almost dead and they rush him to the hospital he survives but Naturally, he's forced to retire. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, he was the one who was really leading the charge. That kind of stalls the investigation. But luckily, later that same year, an intrepid DCI special agent named Lonnie Tabiste picks up the case. And we love Lonnie. Lonnie's going to be our hero. Uh, No, it's a guy. He's a a guy, Lonnie. Yeah. It's like L-O-N-N-I-E, not like Lonnie. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Yep. So he befriends an exhausted and now 80-year-old Claire who has never given up hope of finding her grandson. So she – believed something might have happened to Virginia or even that Gerald maybe did something to Virginia. But for some reason, she cannot lose hope that somehow the children survived or that they um, went somewhere with Virginia and she got herself into trouble, but somebody else raised them. Like she, for some reason, holds on to this hope that the boys are alive. The boys are out there. And so she writes them a letter every year oh, because she's God. worried she's going to die. Yeah. So she'll be like, you would be this old. I wonder if you're out there and if you're married and if you have kids. And I wonder if I'm a great grandmother now. And like she tells a friend that she does this because she like so firmly believes that someday they're going to like find her, find out who she was. And that she wants them to know that they were loved and they were thought of every single day. Wow. Yeah. So she – it's just devastating. She just never – she just thinks they're out there for some reason. And maybe she has to. Maybe she has to hold on to that hope to just get through the day rather than think someone slaughtered a 10 and 11-year-old boy. Yeah. I mean that's pretty hard to digest. Yeah. So also um, Lonnie calls her every birthday and Christmas just to like check in with her and make sure she's doing okay even after he retires. Oh my God. I know. He's just a really good guy. And and it was just really hard. Like even they discuss like the first time Lonnie meets her and she's like, here's all my files. Here's everything I've told like the eight other people yeah. who have run this case. Like 
I think she had a great distrust for people at that point too because it had been bungled so badly in the beginning. Of course. And everyone eventually like at this point in the DCI, um, cold cases were kind of like busy work. Like if you don't have any active cases, like look at a cold case. So people would get busy again with something that was active and she'd be trying to reach them and they'd be like, yeah, sorry, we're working on this other thing now. So like she never felt like anyone prioritized her family members, which is so sad. So in January 2005, Tabeast interviews Alice and Gerald, but the two stick to their story. So now he knows about Ron. And so he's kind of like trying to play that as like his surprise card, you know? So Alice gives him like a complete biography about her whole life. She includes some new details about the fact that she had been molested by her adoptive father and that like when she got pregnant, it was like to get out of the house because she had been abused for so long. And she discusses, like, all of her marriages and all of her jobs, but she leaves out the one marriage and the one job. She doesn't talk about Ron, and she doesn't talk about when she worked at the Sheridan Psych Hospital. Of course not. Does he know about it, though? Mm -hmm. He knows about it. So he catches her in the lie. Yeah. And she's like, oh, you know, I was just so embarrassed because of my lack of professionalism and getting involved with a patient. And also I was embarrassed about the relationship because it didn't last very long. And it was so embarrassing that I got involved with a guy like that. And he's like, yeah, I think it's because you killed him. And she's like, (laughs) yeah. And she's like, what? Me? And she just denies, denies, denies. And there's literally nothing he can do because without a body, he has no evidence. Of course. Yeah. But if he can find that body – If he can find that body, we're good to go. I mean, it's the same thing you were talking about like with sex workers. In his records, this guy is a drug user who'd been in and out of psych hospitals. They don't care about people who have mental health issues, you know? So in May 2008, they forensically search where the hog pits once were. Basically, um, one of the daughters of – of Alice mentioned that like Gerald had always been like weird about like how pigs could eat human bodies and stuff. So they're trying everything. Yeah. So they pay a forensic team to actually go like where the hog pits used to be and literally dig up everything looking for any bone fragment that could be a human's or any tooth or anything, you know, like that. They find nothing. So they're like, you know what? We're not going to find Virginia and the boys. Like they're dead definitely somewhere, but like we're not going to find them. We have to focus on the mine find Ron, and that's going to be our in, you know? So in May 2009, they begin a dig at the mine shaft at Remount Ranch where Ted tells them, you know, his mom said yeah. the, the body was down. But the dig is halted when an excavation expert deems it too dangerous. Like there's going to be a potential cave-in and people can yeah. lose their lives. Yeah. So the powers that be refuse to approve a new budget, which would be necessary for a safe dig. So Lonnie is pissed. He ends up getting so angry that he gets like in trouble for insubordination and like talking back and stuff because he like just rails against them about how wrong this is, you know? He's totally at the end of his rope. He's also getting ready for retirement. So it's like this is the case that he wanted to solve. Of course. So in January 2010, only months later, he retires without ever finding out or proving what he already knows, which is that they were responsible for this. Yep. And this, this like is the last straw for Claire. It just devastates her. I mean, she was really close to Lonnie. And I think she really believed like he was going to be the one because of his commitment to her that he was going to solve this. So it just, it just devastates a frail and elderly Claire. And at this point, she kind of gives up hope that she's ever going to find out what happened to them, you know? 
So in September of 2012, Steve Woodson becomes director of the DCI and he creates the very first cold case team. Um, Steve had been a protege of Lonnie's when he was like a lot younger, when he first got on the DCI, and he had been inspired by his tireless work on Virginia's case. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this cold case team and Steve because they're fucking badass. I'm just like so into them. With all of the 21st century's new investigation tools that never existed when most of these unsolved mysteries happened, Woodson believed it would be a sin, maybe even a firing offense, if DCI agents didn't take an honest, fresh look at all of them. With the the first stroke of his pen, Woodson created DCI's first cold case team, comprising 10 agents from the intelligence unit, the crime lab, investigations, and the FBI, some of the best investigative minds in Cheyenne. Up until now, cold cases were make-work. DCI agents worked them only when they had a special interest and when time allowed, which was practically never. Now Woodson made them a higher priority, not more important than the new cases that happened every day or then ongoing investigations, but certainly not less important when justice still might be served. That's awesome. So he's doing the thing. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Doing the Um, thing. He's doing the thing, but sadly, very shortly after that, in April of 2013, Claire Martin died at the age of 92. Uh, no. Mm-hmm. So she never got to, during life at least, find out what happened. Um, the local paper's obituary noted that she was born on Christmas Day in 1920. It recorded her time as a Rosie the Riveter-type factory worker during World War II and her cross-country move to Wyoming as a single divorced mother in 1962. It listed her many menial jobs in forgettable towns, the requisite list of her joys, the outdoors, gardening, hiking, pets, camping, motorcycles, and long road trips were far longer than the list of her survivors. And of course, it described the moment when her life changed forever. But the obituary didn't say she'd once been happy and funny, that she yearned to sleep through the night just once, that she believed in the healing power of stars and moving water that God never answered her, that at the end, all she had were memories and they weren't enough. Oh, my God, Jesse. Well, that was Ron Franchelle. I cannot oh. take credit for that. Ron. <laughs> Ron. It was devastating. So, yeah. So, though Claire had passed away, or perhaps because of it, the detectives were even more fired up than ever to get a confession out of Alice and Gerald. And they believed, like I said, the key to it was finding Ron Holtz's body. In January 2013, agents in Alaska showed up on Sharon Mack's doorstep requesting a DNA sample to compare it to Ron's and if and when his remains were found. So Sharon was completely taken aback. This is little baby Sharon, Ron's daughter. Now, she's grown up and living in Alaska. She's married with kids. And basically, the story she'd been told her whole life was that she had, like, a dickhead father who was addicted to drugs and didn't want to be her father and left and never tried to contact her. Yeah. So all of a sudden, she's finding out that he might have been the victim of a murder, and it kind of blew her doors off. Of like she's like, oh, my God. Well, that maybe this makes sense. This is like, I wasn't unloved. I, I, he was dead, you know? Ugh, she spent her whole life thinking that. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was crazy. Like this was this was a big revelation for her. But at the same time, they're not telling her anything. They're like, we just need your DNA in case yeah. something shows yeah. up, you know? Meanwhile, Gerald and Alice were living their golden years on a quiet Missouri farm. It had been eight 
years since Lonnie to Beast had revealed that the authorities knew about Ron Holtz and there had never been an arrest or another person coming to question them. So they just were resting easy under the assumption that they couldn't find a body and they weren't going to get in trouble. Oh, my God. Yep. So life had moved on for the killer couple. Gerald had become a long-haul trucker. Alice rode shotgun with him for most of his career. When Alice got older and felt too achy and tired for the constant travel, he replaced her with a baby parrot to keep him company. So he's just having a good time riding the road with his baby parrot. Yeah. So over the long winter of 2012, Gerald and Alice got into one of the only fights of their long marriage. At 70, Gerald wanted to retire, but Alice wanted more than their social security alone could provide. Alice allowed Gerald to retire under the condition that her lifestyle didn't suffer. When she found herself pinching pennies a bit too much for her liking 11 months after Gerald's retirement, she forced the old guy back on the road. Whoa. Crazy. Why uh doesn't she just get a job? Yep. She wasn't working. She didn't want to do anything, but she wanted to make him pay. Unbelievable. So it didn't pay for Gerald to argue with Alice. He had long ago realized that when she was happy, he was happy. And when she wasn't happen- happy, bad things happened. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. But also, they don't know at this point, too, that the DCI is getting real close to Ron's body. So they had just um, approved a budget and come up with a new strategy for digging down that mine Good. at the same time this is all going on. I wonder how they, how and why they did that now instead of when Lonnie was in charge, you know? Well, it was really weird because at the time that Lonnie was trying to push it through, they told him it was going to cost something like $50,000 to do the excavation the way that somebody suggested that it was yep. going to cost. And really it didn't. It ended up like I think maybe they interviewed more people or – or also Steve Woodson, who was the new director of the DCI, was obviously very invested in in solving these cold cases. But I think it only costs like a handful of a thousand dollars, like three thousand, four thousand, five thousand, something like that in the, in in the end. So it was just a misunderstanding about funds. And at the time, I don't think whoever was the director at the time thought that they were appropriate use of the funds, you know? Yeah, exactly. Andy's doing a hard eye roll, guys. I'm just going to describe that to you. (laughs) Unbelievable. basically, now I'm not going to retread the moment, but we have reached the triumphant moment on August 27th, 2013. Thank you. When director Steve Woodson's cold case team, aided by retired agent to beast, Finally unearthed the skeletal remains of poor Ron Holtz. Yay! So crazy. It helps like so many people. (laughs) Oh my God. But think about going back to that first part that I read to you, how they must have felt when they found his skull with the the bullet hole in it. Like so relieved, so glad. Like it's crazy too because it was Lonnie who was like sifting through the bones that found the first foot bone. Oh, even though he was retired? Yeah, they invited Lonnie out to be at the dig, oh, even though he was retired. God, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was the one. And so it was like the first bucket of bones. And he was basically gave Steve Woodson, who's the new director, yeah. and Lonnie like these screens to like sift through things. And the osteologist professor would like come behind them. And it was in... Lonnie's screen, they found the first human bone. So crazy. It's so crazy. And he must have felt so triumphant at that moment. Like all of his instincts paid off, you know? Yeah, for sure. And he probably felt so at peace with what he promised Claire as well. 
Exactly, finally. So afterwards, Sharon's DNA was compared to that of the bones, and the analysis showed that the bones were 1.11 million times more likely to be Sharon's father than any other pile of bones on Earth. Wow. So those are pretty good odds. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, this also raises an interesting point that um, Ron brought up in the book, is that if the bones had been found any earlier, they might not have had DNA, the the technology, yeah. yeah, to really confirm. It could have been still, you know, just potential. So this is great. So it's like, you know, justice was very, very, it took a long time to get served yeah. here. But maybe things do happen for a reason when they happen. I mean, because imagine if they found that body without having that evidence, like the t- all the other clues would have been gone, right? The teeth, the... All of it. Also, think about if they had found the body, but there was no missing persons report on yeah. him. Ugh. Like if somebody had just discovered the body without knowing the connection to Alice, they would have never known who that yeah. guy was. No one ever reported him missing. Yeah. It would have been a real mystery and eventually no one would have cared because no one was calling and asking about it. You know? It's crazy. So the forensic pathologist could conclusively prove based on the position of the bullet that Ron had been killed by a twenty-two bullet to the back of the head, which is – how Gerald killed all that entire family. The whole, Apparently, Alice told him about her MO, huh? Wow. So it was ruled a homicide, obviously. The a bullet was still in the skull when they found it. Oh, my God. How? Uh-huh. It was crazy. I guess it was the same, it was the same type of thing. It had just ricocheted around the brain, you know? Ugh. So Tina Trimble was a woman, Tina, I Figured you got that one, but I didn't know because we've talked about Lonnie before. Tina Trimble was like the head, like lead investigator on this specific case. Okay. And so she'd also been there when they did the uh, the dig. And so the justice is that is being served is slightly delayed because Tina, on the day that they discover the bones, gets deathly ill like food poisoning so bad that you have to be hospitalized oh no and they don't know how because no one else on the dig got sick like they had catered in some sandwiches and stuff so they're like maybe there was something in the deli meat but no one else got sick and they found out it was because at the dig she picked up a baby salamander and was showing it to people and apparently that salamander was covered with a, vi- a virulent strain of salmonella so she like picked up the salamander put it down and then later ate a sandwich and the salmonella got on her food and, and it the made salmonella her- from the dead animal salamander or no <laughs> i don't know probably i don't know where the salmonella came from but it was on the salamander oh my god salmonella salamander exactly yeah so she was so so sick for like 10 days she was bedridden and she was she had to be hospitalized at one point so it delayed justice but not for much longer when she was healed tina and two other agents drove to missouri to finally question and arrest alice uden in the murder of ron holt thank god so I know. So they discovered Gerald was out on the road, which was actually a gift because the two were much stronger together. And when they were kept apart, they couldn't like confer and match their stories as they always had done in the past. And so Alice was now 74 and she looked like a grandmother with white thinning cotton candy hair. Like she is like almost bald. It was, she looks old. Yeah. We'll um, put their pictures up on the Instagram and actually if it's not too much, I have a picture of Ron's skull too. I don't think that's too much. It's not like 
Yeah. It's 40 years old. It's not gory or anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, My dad actually my, – so my dad's a dentist and uh, he went to dental school and they had to practice occasionally on cadavers, but they, he also had a skull that he like used in his like studies. a real skull? A real human skull. And so he got to take it home and the top of the skull is cut off. And so my parents used to put Halloween candy in it Ew. at Halloween. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. I, I I used to think it was kind of terrible, but I guess the person had donated their body to science and I don't know. I mean it wasn't scientific anymore, but he had used it for science at one point, you like, know. He still found a use of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so so she invites the agents in, though she admits she's getting quite tired of being questioned in the long ago disappearances. Tina's like, you're going to, if you're tired of that, you're about to get real tired of jail. Yeah, and, and court. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Tina warmed her up by discussing her life and her marriages. And like very slowly, she finally brought up Ron Holtz. And now she's trying to go through the same song and dance that she gave, you know, Lonnie. And eventually, Tina just slaps down the picture of the skull. Yes. And he's like, well, guess what? Guess what, bitch? We found Boss. him. Yes. Uh-huh. And Alice, to her credit, which let's not give her credit for anything, just doesn't gasp. She doesn't, like, pretend. She doesn't cry. She doesn't, like, do anything. She just acknowledges the skull. And so when Tina says, and now we're going to arrest you and it would go better if you cooperate, she totally confesses. Oh, wow. Really? But, I mean, she tells the version where she is battered. Yeah. And this is self-defense. Yes. So she she admits that one dark, cold December night, she feared for her daughter's life. She claimed that while drunk and on drugs, Ron told her he was going to kill baby Eliza and that she shot him in the back of the head as he reached in the crib to take the child. So later on, she's getting questioned more. And she's talking about they're walking her through how she disposed of the body and stuff. Yeah. And she mentions that the hardest part was disposing of the mattress okay. because he had bled all over it. So now Tina's like, ding, 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 because Ted and Thea had both told the cops that she actually shot him while he was sleeping. Okay. So that would make sense why his blood was on the mattress. Yeah. But she had told Tina earlier, like, he was reaching in yeah. to kill the baby and I shot it. So she's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Okay, so why was his blood on the mattress if he was reaching in the crib? And she's like, yeah, uh, I meant the crib mattress. And I guess, like, I know Alden's is, and I guess at this time that most um, crib mattresses are waterproof because obviously kids have yeah. accidents. Yeah. And she's like, huh, that's weird because, you know, crib mattresses are usually waterproof. It would, And also, it would probably be pretty easy to get rid of a crib mattress. Yeah. They're little and they're not heavy. So why was that the hardest thing? So they basically kind of catch her, but then she, like, really sticks to her previous story. So essentially, like, she's, she's saying that, um, you know, it was this horrible moment. He was about to murder her child. She's smart enough to know. I mean, she shot him in the back of the head. She can't pretend like he was coming at her, you know? Yeah. yeah. So basically, they don't buy her story. Like, I mean, it's entirely possible based on his history that he was abusive. And, you know, I don't fault her for protecting herself and her child. But he was shot while he was sleeping. Yeah. yeah. You And then you threw him down a ditch. Only to be discovered 40 <laughs> years later and have lied about your relationship and employment at his place of admission. I, I mean, come on. She 100% could have gone to the police about oh, this yeah. because, I mean, 
he had a history of violence and mental illness, the cops at the time definitely would have sided with her. You yeah, know? the whole thing is ridiculous. But I don't think she did because I think she had already killed a husband. I think she killed her second husband, Don Parenti. Really? The one – he had a heart, mm-hmm. heart attack? Was that – he he had some issues that put him in the hospital, and they said that he died of alcoholism. alcoholism that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. So we're going to get into that for in a second. Okay. So basically, they also question her about that, which she obviously didn't admit to any wrongdoing. And, and like I said, we'll get into that a little bit further. And she claimed to have absolutely no knowledge of what happened to Virginia and the boys. Um, but it didn't matter. They had her for Ron Holtz and they were definitely going to put her away for that. And they would have all the time in the world to question her about these other yeah. incidents. She was going to jail for murder. In a break from questioning, Special Agent Trimble called Gerald and pretended to be a home health aide. She told him that she didn't know what to do because Alice had been arrested for some long ago crime in Wyoming and that she was freaking out. Gerald needed to get home and help. So that was really smart. Yeah. So Gerald starts freaking out as well. He tells her that he'll, you know, come home or call the sheriff as soon as possible. And he hangs up in a panic. So of course the trap is set. Uh, The morning after Alice spent her first night in jail, an Alaskan state trooper knocked on Sharon Mack's door. And I'm going to read this from the book because it's actually kind of touching. Sharon, I've got some news for you, he said somberly. Down in Wyoming, they found some bones in a mine shaft. With the DNA I collected a few months ago from you, investigators positively identified the bones as your father, Ron Holtz. They've made an arrest in the case too. Sharon was shocked and at the same time lost, relieved, sad, and blessed. Are you okay? He asked. Yes, she said. I guess you are prepared, but never really fully prepared. Can I do anything for you? Nothing, she said, except to thank all the cops who'd done so much for her. She walked him out to his blue unmarked car and waved as he left. She went to her husband's shop out back and told him they'd found the father she couldn't remember. He hugged her and said he was sorry for her. She was sad, but not sorry. She felt blessed to be the best part of Ron Holtz's befouled life. Mostly, though, it gladdened Sharon to know her father hadn't abandoned her after all. He hadn't chosen his absence. I know. That part gave me chills. Yeah. Poor girl. (sighs) Poor girl, but she got answers. So a half hour after Agent Trimble's phony health aid call, Gerald received another call from an FBI agent who insisted he return home immediately to help sort out Alice's legal troubles. So Gerald said he'd be back as soon as possible the following afternoon, which I can't even imagine. Like, Fuck this guy, A. But, like, I can't imagine how he must have been driving home knowing that Alice is in jail. Their jig is up. It's done. So that night he stopped at a truck stop and he wrote a family letter to his sister and cousins admitting his guilt. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Wow. And they had this for, like, evidence against him. He wrote, Dear ones, if you are reading this, it means this will be the last family letter I write. It will also serve as a goodbye and farewell. Alice and I have been arrested and charged with murder of Virginia and the boys. Alice is innocent of any wrongdoing. However, sadly, I am not. I'm sorry for the lies and will pay the price probably with my life. I never had any idea growing up things would turn out this way. I don't think anyone does. Oh, boo-hoo, Gerald. You did this to yourself. I know. So ridiculous. I can make all kinds of excuses for this, but in the end, I knew it was wrong. I'm hoping after my death, I'll be cremated and my ashes scattered to the wind and no marker to show. I do not want anyone to grieve or feel sorry for me. And if anyone asks about me, say he died in prison, always said he would come to a bad end. So you know what? He's still feeling sorry for himself, that asshole. I know. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
So he absolutely believes Alice has been arrested for the murders of Virginia and the boys. He's not even thinking about Ron Holtz. Whoa. He's just yeah. in panic mode. So this is – he's in panic mode and I think that this is like very textbook, like psychological stuff. This is like a telltale heart. Yeah. Like he's thinking about his crimes. He's thinking about the things that have weighed on his heart. He doesn't give a fuck about Ron Holtz. Which is – he doesn't care what what Alice has done. His first and only thought, and in that letter it proves it, is that she's going down for the thing he feels guilty yep. about. Mm-hmm. So anyways, when he's finally interviewed by the DCI and FBI, he straight up like stops them before they even question him and is like, yeah, I did it. I killed Virginia. He's like, can you, um, can you let Alice go? Because she didn't do it. I totally did it. I killed everybody. I'll tell you exactly how I killed them. So the agents can't believe their luck. He's admitting to three murderers they didn't even question him about. Crazy. Just throwing himself Crazy. on the table. Exactly. So he he was like the biggest dummy in the world, which is great. So they booked him right then and there. And just like that, Alice and Gerald were finally caught for their decades-old murders. So they went after her for crazy? Ron. Yep. They went after her for Ron. But when um, Tina called him, she said, I don't know. Like she was pretending she was just like um, a, a healthcare worker yeah. that was sent from the hospital. And she was like, I don't know. I guess it's like something that happened in Wyoming years ago. And both of the crimes happened in Wyoming. She didn't say it was about her ex-husband. Yeah. So they – and when they said that she'd been arrested, they were like, and we, you know, we think you have some information about it. And he just didn't – he didn't play it cool and he didn't think yeah. that she could also be arrested for that, you know? Yeah. So yeah, so Lonnie Tabis, the the retired DCI cop who had worked so hard on it, um, was on vacation with his wife when he got two texts the day after Gerald's confession. The first was from director Woodson and said only, call me ASAP. The second, also from Woody, that's what they called Detective Woodson, oh. said, he confessed. He read them several times. He wasn't sure they really meant what they said. Gerald once told to Beast he'd never give up a secret. Never. Nobody expected Gerald to admit anything. At best, they hoped Gerald would fill in a few details on the Holtz murder. Tabise congratulated Woodson for keeping the case alive and told him to tell Trimble she was a hero. He had invested a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in the case, but it wasn't his. It was theirs. After they hung up, Tabiste was both delighted and dejected. Happy, tickled, shitless, really. <laughs> this is from Ron's book. <laughs> that this wretched case would finally be closed. Sad that Claire wasn't here to see it. She had never found out what happened to the boys, but a part of him thought maybe it was better that she died with a tiny flicker of hope for them. Lonnie Tabiste kept those two texts in his phone for a very long time. They always made him smile. Oh. I wonder where he was so Gerald, uh, They were in Colorado. Okay, cute. <laughs> so Gerald took a plea bargain to spare himself the death penalty on October 24th, 2013, and he was committed to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Okay. He detailed exactly how he killed the family and said it was motivated by greed, stopping the child support, and his fear of losing Alice due to Virginia's interference in their life. So still blaming Virginia. Uh-huh. Wow. That's impressive. Um, one, ugh, he's just such a loser. Yeah. He's just such a loser. He was just an. He just kept double downing on, like doubling down on loser. Yeah. It's like at every option, he had a chance to get better, and he got worse and worse and worse. <laughs> loser button. Loser button. <laughs> he just kept hitting the loser button. <laughs> um. 
So one confession that was interesting, though not at all surprising, was that that night he was arrested outside of Claire's laundry, he had planned on killing her. Whoa. Mm -hmm. He even told the cops that. So those officers, even though they didn't originally connect the cases, at least saved her life. Wow. That's so and so I mean, scary. I, I think so scary how close. I mean, think about how close we all are to death every single day of our oh lives. God, Jesse. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, guys. Statistically, you probably won't die. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So um, me- meanwhile, the state was building their case against Alice in the murder of Ron Holtz, which would be going to trial. Seeing as there was a confession, the prosecution's strategy would be fairly straightforward, and the defense would, of course, be arguing self-defense and that she was protecting her infant daughter. And so the agents now dug into the death of husband number two, Don Prunty, who had died of alcoholism, but under mysterious circumstances. Two of Alice's children had claimed that during that marriage, Alice had often slipped Don something in his drinks that made him sick. So there was some speculation that she had already been poisoning him. Sounds right. Yep. And um, yeah, sounds about up her alley. A medical examiner studied his medical records and death certificate and like all of the hospital records leading up to – because he was hospitalized for a week before he died. Yeah. And they looked at his complaints and injuries and they were consistent with antifreeze poisoning. Shit. Mm-hmm. So the Emmy told them to exhume the body because even after all this time, it was – so this is like 42 years, yeah. I think, earlier. But even after all this time, if there was still any soft tissue in the kidneys or brain, they could probably find evidence of the poison. Whoa. That – even with that Which much time. incredible. Even with that much time, if there was still soft tissue existing. Whoa. So in January of 2014, they exhumed Don Prunty, but tragically the casket seal had failed. Oh no. And water and muck. Yeah. So most of the time, if you get any sort of not completely crap casket, it is it's sealed to be watertight. And this one had failed. The seal had failed. The casket had filled with water and mud and completely eroded the body. Oh. So no no soft tissue at all remained. It was just a skeleton in a pile of muds and er- mud and earthworms. Oh man. Ugh, so that sucks cuz I think she completely did. And that would have been the only way to prove it. The only way to prove it. I mean, there was some like, you know, testimony from her kids that they believed it, but they never saw her like pouring yeah. the antifreeze bottle yeah. into his drink, you yeah. know. And if she admitted um, it. Yeah, so so she – I don't even think she admitted that one to her kids. That was just their speculation. Also, in the end, his death was reclassified as undetermined, but they could not rule it a homicide. Okay, well, that's better than died of alcoholism. You know what I mean? I know. It's like yeah. not fair. Uh, Antifreeze totally is not, not fair. fall under the category of alcohol. Yeah, I don't think people voluntarily <laughs> choose to imbibe that. <laughs> Alice's trial began May 1st, 2014, nearly 40 years since anyone had ever seen the troubled young man alive. The jury was comprised of five men and seven women, which wasn't a great sign for Alice, as statistically women are harsher um, harsher than men on other women. No mention of Gerald's crimes or Alice's involvement in them was allowed, which makes sense but is kind of BS. Because essentially they didn't want to look at her like her involvement in killing children. Obviously, that would color the uh, feelings of the jury. 
So they just wanted her to be tried for this case. And the defense fought very hard to make sure that that was excluded and they won. I know. But like we – it could have – you know, as much as Alice was definitely telling Gerald to do it, like he's the one that shot him. Exactly. I mean at the end of the day, it was Gerald. Gerald admitted it. But I do think as a jury member, I would have liked to know that she ends up later on being an accessory to a very similar crime. for sure. You know, so anyway, they don't they don't talk about it at all. The biggest obstacle for the prosecution was getting the jury to see past the 75 year old infirm grandmother in a wheelchair to a buxom, manipulative, strong woman who had taken a man's life in 1974. So they're looking at this like frail lady and being like, how could she kill him? I, know. I mean, know? that's just what happened with the Golden State Killer, too. You know what I mean? He was exactly. like, exactly, literally looked like walking death, and they had to go through the whole trial. It's, it's, but it's like th- just because they're old doesn't mean they shouldn't serve and justice shouldn't be served. Exactly. And that's also why I don't trust old motherfuckers. They look nice now, but you don't know what they did. No. You don't know who they Can't are. Trust them as far as you throw them. I know. That's why it's like always surprising when you're like meet a nice old person and you're like making nice co- like conversation about like your kid or your pet or something. And they're like, oh, you're just such a lovely young person. And then they say something racist and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Turns out my neighbor's a racist. I got to leave. <laughs> if any of my neighbors are listening to the podcast, you're all not racist. At least I don't think so. So one of the most explosive moments of the trial happened during Alice's son Ted's testimony, who, of course, testified against his mother. In a quiet moment, Alice whispered to her son, I love you. Oh, God. And Ted, Ted completely lost it. He stood up, his face turned bright red, and he was like, I hate you. I hate you. So everyone was just like real surprised, but they shouldn't have been because she was a shit mother. She's so manipulative. Like, I cannot believe she said that in the court. I love you. After everything she had done to him, are you kidding me? So in the closing remarks, the prosecutor tried again to hammer home who Alice had been like when she actually murdered Ron. He said, that is not the woman who shot Mr. Holtz. He held up a picture of young Alice instead. This is the woman who shot Mr. Holtz. And less than a year and a half later, she was happily married again, moving on with her life. He made one last emotional plea. Alice lived her life, he told jurors. Ron Holtz didn't get a chance. He didn't have a chance to get better. He didn't have a chance for anything. He spent the last 39 years in that hole. She shot him when he was asleep. Thank you. And I think that brings up a really good point. Like maybe he had done bad things in his life, but he had no chance to become something better no, in his life. He didn't deserve to get shot in the head while he was sleeping. No. Absolutely not. So Nor did his at the family members. Of the- like you know, they don't they didn't shouldn't have had to deal with him being murdered. No, and his daughter forever yeah. for her entire life thinking that her, her father abandoned her. Ugh. So at the beginning of the deliberations, seven out of twelve jurors were immediately prepared to hand her the mandatory life sentence for first-degree murder. And eventually three more agreed, but one juror was a holdout for over 13 hours. Uh, They wanted the much lesser charge of manslaughter. Eventually the jury compromised to avoid uh, mistrial and found Alice guilty of second-degree murder. But it didn't matter what she got because still she was sentenced to life in prison. Good, Okay. And honestly, even if she had only gotten 20 years, she was so sick and old, it would have been life in prison anyway. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I'm glad she got like the full exactly it's like it's the what is it called it's the principle of it it's the principle of it (laughs) um alice and gerald spent the next five years sharing the same prison facility most likely separated only by yards of concrete that connected the men and women's geriatric wards they were never allowed to see each other or speak on the phone ever again though they may have written each other letters the crimes that had kept them together for decades finally separated them for good. Whoa. I'm so glad. Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad too. Fuck those people. Ron Franchelle goes into great detail in his book about the technology and expense spared to drag the deep tree, uh, the deep Fremont Lake to find the remains of Virginia, Richard, and Regan. But sadly, they were never found. One forensic psychiatrist said that Gerald hadn't been honest about where the bodies were dumped because Alice, conniving to the end, didn't want them to be found. So that's what this one psychiatrist believed. In the end, Gerald seemed to have little remorse for killing a woman he once loved and his own children. In a letter to Ron, he wrote... It might sound cold, but I've read a lot about people having nightmares and people they killed coming back to haunt them, Gerald said in our prison interview. But honestly, I never lost a night's sleep over oh, it. Oh, my fact, God. Uh-huh. In fact, we wouldn't even be talking today if my idiot stepson hadn't opened his mouth. Whoa. No remorse. No remorse. Alice passed away in prison at the age of 80 on June 12th, 2019, immediately after Gerald told authorities that he actually had been covering for Alice this whole time and that she actually killed Virginia and the boys. Unbelievable. Uh huh. This weasel, this little weasel. And that now that she was dead, he was free to be totally honest. So he's going to appeal for a new trial. But no one believes him. His appeal was rejected. And he will die a lonely, cold death in a terrible prison. And I hope Virginia and those sweet baby boys haunt the crap out of him. I hope so too. And so and Alice. Oh, and Alice. I hope Alice really haunts him for saying that she did it at the end. I feel like she'll really get him. Oh, she'll be pissed. I thought you were going to say that so like when he, you know, obviously I'm just too much of a softie. I thought you were going to be like, and two months later, because he was so sad that she died, he died of a broken heart. Nope, that bastard's still alive and now he's trying to blame it on her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ron and Virginia never got a chance to turn their lives around and Richard and Regan never even got a chance to grow up or become anything Due to the craven, cowardly actions of two horrible people. Two horrible old people. Two miserable F-heads. Like, seriously, this is like, this is romance gone very wrong insofar as when two people met, they made each other so much worse. Yeah, no, it's definitely like not, it's not a positive way to be. No, so that, that concludes the sad chapter of a couple of real dickheads. And uh, next week, next week, we have our first uh, listener recommended story. We're very excited. Um, It's also a very, you know, we've done a historical one. And then, you know, this one took mostly place in uh, like the 70s and 80s. And uh, the next one's a very modern true crime story. In closing, if after the first time you have sex and you're laying there in a post-coital glow, somebody admits to murder, get up. Get dressed and walk out of their life. Oh, man, I, I would run fully undressed. 
if need be. <laughs> There's no worse party than a chicken slaughter party. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. Please don't invite us to a chicken slaughter party. We're not coming. And remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. All right, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Night, Andy. Bye. Bye.